All right, good evening. Wow, it's really loud. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming. I'm Mike Duran. I'm a senior fellow here at, uh, at Hudson. Um, and it's my honor and pleasure to welcome Nick Westcott, who is the managing director for the Middle East and North Africa and the European External Action Service. Um, and uh, do I call you Ambassador Westcott? No, you can just call me Nick. Nick. Nick has a very distinguished, ser a very distinguished uh, career in the uh, British Foreign Service um, before he moved to the European External Action Service, where he served uh, as the director for Africa. Right. You and I should say that before, when you were when we when you were uh, serving uh, Her Majesty, you were the High Representative to Ghana. Is that right? Yeah. And then, High Commissioner. Uh, High Commissioner. The archaic term. High Commissioner to Ghana. But, uh, and then he was the director for Africa and, and now the Middle East. Um, uh, uh, Nick is going to speak for uh, three or five minutes, make a, a general statement, and then I'll uh, ask him a few questions about relations between the United States and, uh, uh, and the EU with respect to the Middle East, and then we'll open it up to questions uh, to you. So. Uh, Without further ado, Nick, I'll hand it to you. Mike, thank you very much. And uh, it's a pleasure to have the chance to come and talk here at the uh, Hudson Institute. You might find it slightly curious to have an Englishman talking to you about European policy on the Middle <laughs> East. But uh, we are still, uh, the UK is still part of it. And uh, in fact, our interests coincide a great deal. So it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. Um, I just wanted to say three things by way of broad introduction um, to try and give you some steer as to where the European Union is coming from. Firstly, we, we have a European Union position because although the EU has a lot of small countries, few big countries, uh, in relation to our next door neighbor, neighbors in the Middle East and North Africa, our interests are very much aligned. And uh, therefore, we do have a lot of common interests that we want to protect um, further collectively. Uh, secondly, our approach is very much based on Europe's interests in the region. We have enormous economic interests, commercial interests, business interests. So the health of the economy of our neighbors really matters to us, matters to them. We want it to grow fast. We're looking to build prosperity across the Middle East, North African region um, for, in our mutual interest. But secondly, the stability of that region has a direct impact on the EU. If there is instability, it's Europe that the refugees flee to for safety. It's Europe that the migrants come to for opportunity. It's Europe that the terrorists come to if they want to attack us and blow us up. So instability in our immediate uh, Middle East and North African neighborhood has a direct and immediate impact on the EU. We therefore have a huge interest in trying to build the stability of that region. Uh, that those interests we try and reflect in our strategy. And the strategy reflects the fact that our interests actually coincide also with what we call our values. Um, and that is, we believe the region is going to be stable if there are governments that are accountable to their people rather than imposing on their people. Um, and we believe there will be stability if the economies of that region are relatively open, they trade, they encourage investment, they're good for business. And those so open markets and open societies uh, respecting democracy and human rights, that's what's underpinning our strategy and it coincides with our interests. So we want to pursue both together. We try and represent that. Uh, in our, a set of strategies, we have a global strategy that the High Representative uh, Federica Mogherini launched last year. And stability of our immediate neighbors was a key element of that. So what we are now doing is trying to put that into action. And this is what we might then discuss in more detail, particularly in relation to uh, the, the, the conflict in the region. Putting that into action, we, first of all, want to promote prosperity in the region. We have a whole set of large programs uh, supporting uh, economic development, building partnership, opening uh, trade and, and business links. Uh, secondly, 
we do it by trying to prevent conflict breaking out. And a lot of what we're trying to do across the region is prevent the spread from some of the conflicts that are existing, supporting those countries that may be fragile but are still relatively stable. And thirdly, then we have to actually stop, uh, resolve the conflicts that exist, of which, alas, there are too many. And in particular, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, the threat to those countries from terrorism is one that we really fully support the actions of the global coalition. Um, and in all of them, we are working together with international partners, including the US. And this is the subject of the core of our discussion. Uh, we support them in trying to resolve these conflicts and bring back a degree of peace, stability, prosperity, and accountability. Thank you. Thanks. Um, with your permission, and now, now that I've got you in front of everybody asking the question, you're going to have to say yes. Uh, I'd like to ask you just a few personal questions, if you don't mind. Because uh, uh, I think for a lot of us Americans, even those of us who are, uh, um, have a fair degree of knowledge about international uh, politics, the relations between the EU and the member states and everything, it's still, it's, it's rather mysterious. Mm. So uh, I, I, listening to you here, your British accent and your background, I, I'm curious, are you, are, you, are you seconded to the EU or are you, are you a, a full-time EU employee? What happens to you when, when Brexit uh, oh, yeah. is finalized? <laughs> You never know what will happen next. So. Yeah. yeah, we don't know the Brexit will be finalized. Assuming that it's finalized, what, what happens to you? Uh, I'm a British diplomat by background. I served 28 years with the Foreign Commonwealth Office all around, including here in Washington, D.C. for three years. Um, but when the European External Action Service was set up, a strange name, but it's the European Foreign Office, basically, uh, in 2011, I joined it on uh, what we call unpaid leave from the Foreign Office. So I'm still a member of the Foreign Office. Mm. Uh, when I finish in Europe, I'll go back there. Uh -huh. And uh, at the moment, I stay until we leave, and then I leave and go back home. Um, but uh, the UK was an integral part of setting up. And in fact, historically, the UK has been one of the biggest supporters of having a common foreign policy. Mm. Um, and I was involved many years ago in uh, drafting the Maastricht Treaty, which first encapsulated the common foreign security policy. And the UK was pushing it. We wanted this because... Uh, John Major, am I right? John Major was the man who uh, cut the deal. And then my job immediately after the Maastricht Treaty was to implement the CFSP bit and set up uh, the Political Directors Network. And the aim was because we do have a lot of common interests outside. And if you have the member states, you have Germany, France, Britain sort of going off and pursuing different policies uh, in any region, none of us have the impact that we will if we act collectively. And so actually there was a lot of self-interest in building a common European foreign policy. For the small countries, they were delighted because Malta doesn't have a huge voice on the world stage, but it has some real interests across right. the region. Acting as part of the EU, their voice is amplified. Actually the same even for the big countries. So if pursuing the British national interest happens to coincide with French, German, Italian, Spanish, uh, then we all speak together, loud voice, big impact, good result. It's hard for me to. It's hard for me to imagine that there won't be some kind of uh, arrangement in the end that will allow the British to work closely with the EU in foreign policy. I mean, especially given the importance of Britain in matters of defense. I know this is a little bit outside of our area, but since you raised no, it, it, it's an interesting question, and it's actually very relevant in the region that uh, I'm dealing with at the moment. Also, where I was in Africa, where I was dealing with before, whether Britain is in or outside of the European Union. Its interests are very much the same. And those interests will continue to coincide about 80% of the time with that of the other members of the European Union. So uh, rather, as with a number of other close neighbors who are not members of the EU, we're likely to want to act collectively, I suspect. There'll be one or two areas where we diverge. Where we diverge at the moment, it's an interesting process. You have long arguments uh, where the outliers sort of gradually come together and the common position shifts a little bit this way, a little bit that way. But broadly, everybody wants to get to an agreed position in the end. Okay, if the UK is outside, we don't have that pressure on us. 
So where we disagree, uh, the UK will just go off and do its own thing. But the 90% of time that we do agree, it will still make sense to try and uh, act collectively. So when you go back to the Foreign Office, they're going to need you to be a node of... Anyway, we'll, we we'll see. We'll, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Um, so listen, we'll move to the Middle East now, and the EU and the, the United States and the Middle East. Um, why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about what you've been doing here, and tell us all the secrets. I uh, came through New York yesterday, as I mentioned to you, uh, following in your footsteps, although I didn't get to address the Security Council. Um, and that's because the EU and the UN actually in many parts of the world, particularly in a crisis situation, tend to act together. Uh, and our role is, is related but similar. The UN is a sort of broker. And we help to broker and try and support the UN processes. Here in Washington, I have just been to see the NSC, um, talked to some other think tanks, uh, uh, different background, and tomorrow we'll have a day of talks with the State Department about basically the whole of the region. I've come over once or twice a year to do this because in the Middle East in particular, the European Union can do so much on its own, but with the uh, US, um, often jointly with the UN, we can do a whole lot more. So what are the areas of divergence between us and the EU, us, the United States, and the, and the EU um, that are of greatest concern to you? Well, this is uh, an interesting area to explore because historically the areas of divergence have been quite small. And there are now some who are saying that divergences are getting bigger. And that's what I've come to explore because it's not actually clear that they are getting bigger. So, Middle East peace process. You know, actually, uh, new president has launched kind of new approach. Um, historically, we've all been camped on two-state solution. Clearly, that debate is now opened up. And we also want there to be a solution. Hitherto, the two-state solutions are like the only one. Uh, one state or no state is no solution. Okay, if there's another way forward, we want to be involved and hear what it is and how we can get there and how we can help get there, because we all want a solution. Um, Insofar as at least one party has said two-state solution is the only solution, the Palestinian side, that still looks like the most obvious solution to head for. But if there are new ideas cooking here, we're open to talk about them. Did you, did you get a sense that there are new ideas? Well, unfortunately, the guys have just gone off to the Middle East <laughs> <laughs> talk about it there. Um, but uh, And up to now, there's a lot of you know, openness to consider these uh, alternatives, but little by way of specific suggestions to what the alternatives might be. I know, it's quite interesting. I, I, it's hard to find, um, I think, anything approaching a kind of major statement on the issue by the, by the administration. We're all, re we're all leading, reading tea leaves. Yes. I was hoping you could tell us what was really going on behind the scenes. Well, I can only see the same tea leaves that you have. And uh, as I say, the tea leaves they left behind. Maybe they'll say more when they get there. But I was, I was in Israel last week, interestingly, at a, a conference on the peace process, where um, interest, unexpectedly, there was rather more optimism that the kind of fluidity, flexibility that the new president's approach had introduced might actually lead to people uh, thinking fresh, fresh thoughts about the peace process um, and might make things move a bit. Because to be honest, they haven't been moving a lot lately. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of talk about this outside-in idea of using the, the Gulf states and their shared concern about Iran, the, the, the concern that they share with Israel about Iran mm. um, uh, as a lever or as a, um, a, as a mechanism for, uh, for uh, shoring up the Palestinians and, um, and encouraging them to make concessions and also encouraging the Israelis to make concessions so that it becomes kind of a wider negotiation mm. um, uh, than just an Israeli-Palestinian negotiation. You have, do you have much uh, hope of that? And has been the, on the table for uh, 15 years now, the Arab Peace Initiative. 
And the Arab countries, including the Gulf countries, still say, yep, you know, we are willing to move in that direction, recognize Israel, open relations, if there is this kind of a settlement. But what's interesting is, fine, people will say quite a lot, quietly, uh, behind the scenes, but if you come in public, they all stick to their existing positions. Right. And actually, we need to see some of those conversations behind the scenes reflected in public presentation. So I, I think Arab engagement is going to be vital to finding the solution. Um, they can put in a lot of money. They can give a lot of political support. They can help encourage uh, the Palestinian side in particular, but also the Israeli side. So come on, it's worth cutting a deal now. So their involvement is essential. Uh, but ultimately, only the two parties can decide what they're willing to live with. And we're all a supporting chorus. So when you look at the at the Middle East, forget about the Americans for a second, but uh, well, we can leave the Americans in there too. Uh, you look at the Middle East and the Americans. What is the thing? Uh, you you gave us the kind of overview of the strategy, mm. but what is the thing that personally keeps you up uh, from keeps you from sleeping the most? I'm sorry. I'm going to qualify that question. What do you spend your most time on? Yeah. And what causes you the most, the, the, what, what, and what troubles you the most? Because it might yes. not be the same thing. Uh, the, the, the answer is the same, and uh, it both applies to me because I cover this area, but also the European member states uh, collectively. It's Syria and Libya. Mm. And for slightly different li- reasons. Uh, Libya is a state in complete disorder on our borders. The Mediterranean Sea is quite narrow at this point, so we can, can consider that our border. And at the moment, it is allowing through this steady flow of hundreds of thousands of migrants a year, migrants and refugees, and in an uncontrolled way, to the profit of traffickers who are making one estimate. It's that the trafficking of migrants last year earned $1.6 billion for the traffickers in Libya. So this is a size of the In Libya, only $1.6 billion. $1.6 billion. I have no way of verifying that estimate because they don't file tax returns. But, you know, uh, it's, it's a huge order of magnitude of money they are making from this. And it produces this tide, what is perceived as a tide of migrants into Europe, where this is, has become, over the last year or two, as you've seen, quite a toxic political issue. Right. So it's a major preoccupation for not only the countries immediately receiving, but for Europe as a whole, because it has driven the rise of a, of a nationalistic, right-wing, anti-European, anti-migrant uh, uh, political set of political movements, which have been very disruptive. Um, and so this is a really high political priority. And all our efforts to try and contain this problem are making some progress, but limited until we can get a political solution there, because there is no authority and no law and order in this space. And therefore, the traffickers are free to operate. Uh, So achieving a political settlement that enables some form of authority to be reestablished in that state is a high priority, top priority. Syria, but that's, if you like, a local and contained problem in terms of the world. Syria is an uncontained problem involving Iran, Russia, U.S., whole of the Gulf, uh, and uh, Turkey, you know, the lot. And that is, uh, at the moment, an uncontrolled crisis with enormous potential ramifications across the globe. Um, Therefore, we too, as the European Union, very focused on trying to get a political process underway because we seriously do not believe there is a military solution to this. There may be military results, but there will not be a solution because there will not be sustainable or stable, and we need a stable region. So those two, really, are by far the biggest immediate crises that we're trying to deal with. And for both of them, we can't solve these problems single-handed. We need to work with the US. We need to work with Arab partners who are closely involved. We need to work with the Gulf. So it would be nice if the Gulf had a single point of view on this rather than divergent ones. And the Turks? 
and the Turks, our um, also close neighbors. Are the Turks, are the Turks in, uh, in your portfolio? No. Uh, we stop uh, because they are a country that has applied to accede to the European Union. Mm. So they're dealt with by a different team who deal with that. However, they have a big impact. Right. Your, um, the migration yeah. and Syria stabilization, clearly related, but they're not, they're, they're, they're not the same thing. Would you say that when you think about your job in the, the European External Action Service, um, where you could have the most direct effect rather than being an auxiliary to others, it, it it's really would be on the migration issue rather than on Syria, or am I wrong about that? The ability of the European Union to influence outcomes varies from place to place. And actually in some uh, smaller countries, we can help affect the critical mass. And I would say one of the key areas where the EU has had beneficial influence is in helping countries like Lebanon, like Jordan, remain stable. Mm. Because we're able to uh, invest heavily there through uh, financial support, political support, economic support, to avoid them being destabilized by these flows of uh, refugees. They have hold more refugees than we do. Um, and they're smaller countries and poorer countries. So uh, that's where we have actually made a big difference. But because they haven't collapsed in chaos, people don't notice. Right. Um, the migration issue yeah, is a top priority. It was a major issue in relation to Syria until we were able to agree an arrangement with Turkey. That uh, stopped the flow. So that was, a, again, a critical issue, yes, and it's where the European Union was able to make a difference by working with the Turks to stop the flow. So when you start thinking like that, because this, this is what I was driving at, mm. uh, is you don't have an army. The, other, the states have the armies, and the yeah. states are making, exactly. right? So on the one hand, you're representing all of Europe, but, but when it comes to tools, you don't have all the tools mm. at, 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 at your disposal. So you have to, on the one hand, you have to think strategically in terms of the big picture, but on the other hand, you have to think about what your organization, your, the value added of your, the specific value added of your, of your organization. I think you probably just answered this, but, but if I put it to the question to you like that, mm. and I said, where, where, is the, where is the greatest value added for your organization, not, not your, your perspective, what, where would it be? Would it be Lebanon, Jordan, or are there other areas as well? Uh, I'll, I'll take one step back because the, the point you make is a very important one. Um, and the, also the situation is evolving all the time. Uh, up to now, the European Union's instruments, if you like, have been primarily economic. Trade agreements, financial support. Therefore, where we've been able to make the biggest single difference really is across North Africa. Countries like Morocco, mm. Tunisia, mm. Uh, potentially Algeria or ones like Jordan and Lebanon, where our economic support can really make all the difference. Right. And Tunisia's stability owes a considerable amount. Mm. The huge support, not just the EU, but right. the EU has really helped support a democratic process that has built a degree of stability, enabled a more peaceful transition in, um, after the Arab Spring than we've seen in other, other places. All our support could not stop Libya. Right. It's integrating. So, you know, it varies from place to place. But that's traditionally been our, um, the major leverage, uh, the major influence that we can bring to bear. But one of the big conclusions from last year's uh, global strategy is that soft power is not enough mm. to protect our interests. Right. And you're quite right, the, the, sort of the kinetic end of it, the hard end of it, is held by the member states. But the member states themselves are increasingly saying, hey, you know what? We can't just act independently. We can act through NATO in some circumstances, but right. NATO can't answer all the circumstances. Right. So just in the last two or three weeks, new steps forward have been taken with the agreement of the UK to try and strengthen our ability to act in the security field. Mm. These are still limited operations, but we have uh, common security and defense missions uh, which provide training, provide security sector reform, uh, provide border management assistance, mm. and we are beefing up 
our ability to use those and expand the size, expand the resources available to them, expand the coordination. And they complement what we do with NATO. Very right? interesting. We're building a closer relationship with NATO as well so that we become more integrated in that way. Are you, are, are you at, a, at a point where you can discuss the, your near-term targets? As I say, the near-term targets are quite modest at this stage, but it's, it's a, a direction of travel Mm. Where I think, you know, we take one step at a time. We're right. not setting ourselves over ambitious goals to mm. you know, set up a European army. You know, we've been around that course a few times in the right. past. Uh, no, we're going to see what we can do in practical terms uh, of providing practical support to in or neighboring countries. And uh, Libya is an example. What are we doing there in practical terms? We have a naval mission, Operation Sophia. The objective is to try and contain the traffickers' ability to ship people across. Now, it also has had a search and rescue function, but it is also training the Libyan Coast Guard. And, you know, as and when a stable government emerges, that's going to be a crucial ally of ours in tackling this trafficker challenge. And we have a border mission that, again, is looking for a future Libyan, help a Libyan government maintain its own borders. So, again, we can bear down on the traffickers. Do you play any role with, the, with regard to this border mission Mm. Uh, and say working with the Italian Coast Guard or the, or, the, or the Greek Coast Guard and so on in terms of interdiction and that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. The, the coordination is, is close. Um, and uh, the Italians are also providing training in areas that we uh, collectively as the European Union can't to the Coast Guard. They provide uh, some, some vessels, which again we can't because we can't spend money on military mm. hardware. The Italians can. So we work hand in glove. Mm. Very interesting. Um, when you look at the, if we go back to the soft power side of things, and uh, you, you said strengthening North Africa, what, it, what would you say is your greatest success? Because it, it sounds like you're in the unenviable position of having successes that nobody notices because nothing went wrong. Right? But we're, we're, which, which one of these sort of preventive uh, actions would you say is your, is your best? I, I say again, Tunisia where our support for the democratic revolution uh, has enabled a stable country to emerge. And uh, President Asebsi came to Brussels two, three months ago and said, you are our model. Mm. We want to be like you. We want to prove that you can have an Islamic and a democratic government, both. And uh, we support that. Secondly, a smaller thing in Iraq, the European Union is playing a leading role in the demining effort. And we do that hand in hand with the UN. Um, but we're making a difference there. And this demining enables the civilian population to return in Anbar province, get their businesses going again, get their lives up and running. And that's crucial to Iraq's future. So sometimes it's in small contributory ways. In others, occasionally, it's a really big thing. Our support again for the Lebanese uh, political process, which is working. Um, for the electoral process, they've just agreed a new electoral law. We will support them implementing that. Now, let me uh, let me take you to a more contentious issue. Then we'll uh, then we'll take questions from the from the crowd. Um, contentious with me, uh, not necessarily with my government. I don't, perhaps with my government as well. Uh, I I recently went through Brussels, mm -hmm. and I think there's one area where there's clearly a big divergence between, I would say, generally the American perspective and the, and the European perspective, but certainly my own personal one. And that's on the question of Iran and Iran's activities in the, in, in, in the region. Um, and we're seeing a tendency, uh, not full-blown yet, but I suspect it will become full-blown on the part of the administration to want to push back against Iran uh, across the region. And that leads to the possibility that the stabilization in Syria, when viewed from an American point of view, could become an anti-Iranian mission, mm. right? And I, I suspect, well, I'm asking this as a question, that that's not how the EU would see it. And the EU would, some of the member states for sure, would have trouble with the stabilization mission being an anti-Iranian mission. So I wonder if you could just, just, just talk around that issue a little bit. Uh, policy on Iran is one where I think there is a visible divergence, but it is more visible than real. 
because the argument is really more about tactics than objective. Our wish is for Iran to be a good neighbor and an undisruptive neighbor and a prosperous neighbor. That's what we want. We think actually most Iranian people want that too. Not all. There's a lot of aggressive rhetoric. It's a country that still declares its wish to wipe Israel off the map, that is clearly engaging in some aggressive, disruptive activities in neighboring countries. We know that. We don't want that to happen. The debate is over tactics. And obviously, under the last administration, we all worked very closely together in a direction of saying one thing that would be really disruptive is a nuclear-armed Iran. How can we stop that happening? And we agreed with the Chinese and the Russians and the Americans and the E3, uh, the Brits, French, and, and Germans, with the EU playing a key role, uh, that it was worth the effort to stop them becoming a nuclear-armed Iran. Heavy sanctions were put on that worked. People often say sanctions don't work. These worked. And Iran came to the table and negotiated a 10-year deal. Okay, we can discuss the sunset clause issue. That has succeeded. We don't have to discuss. We can agree it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that has succeeded in putting on hold the nuclear program. And the Iranians are respecting that. And there's a really tough regime of inspection that's showing that. Good. Step one. That's not the end of the story, by any means. We still have sanctions on. You still have sanctions on. They are still a disruptive element in some parts of that region. And we don't want that either. We believe it is worth engaging in a dialogue with Iran over this. And the JCPOA has provided the opportunity for us to have pretty frank and open conversations with them behind closed doors. But they're frank conversations. Uh, but there's some incentive in the Iranians to participate and think, hang on a minute, you know, maybe it's worth the while. Um, we're still awaiting the outcome of the uh, new administration's uh, review of Iran policy. But as you say, there are some indications that uh, the approach might be different. And it's uh, one thing I'm, I'm here to discuss, see where that review has got to. But also to explain what our approach is. You're not going to tell us where it is, are you? <laughs> uh, no, they, could, they didn't tell me where it is. <laughs> We're all in the same boat. He leaves, okay. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, we are, but you know, it, it's, it's useful to have the opportunity to explain that from our point of view, uh, just to cut off and isolate Iran is not going to produce the outcome that we want. There has to be some incentive for them to engage positively in the region. Now, obviously, the, in the Gulf, there's a lot of concern as well about Iranian behavior. Activities in Yemen would seem to support that kind of argument. Activities in Syria as well. And we and others have argued for some, some years there really needs to be some kind of security framework for this region in the same way that we have had in Europe that enabled us to manage these kind of divergent interests and potential conflicts without it breaking out into open war. I think we're still a little way from that, but it remains an objective. I think ultimately it's going to be in everybody's interest. A sort of Mexican standoff is not going to be a stable result. I, uh, that was a very intriguing final statement you made, mm -hmm. or final couple of sentences. You're, you're envisioning a new security architecture, one that includes Iran? Is that, the, is that what I heard you say? This has been an idea, and I say no more than that. It's not a European policy, but it's an idea that's been floated around. Uh, I think it's an idea that needs to be explored. We don't have a solution, um, but as I say, uh, what are the alternatives? A standoff is not going to be uh, stable in the long term. But the, you can only do that if there is at least a degree of trust. And you know, we've got to swear a little way back from that, too. And trust means changing behaviors. When you, um, when you likened it to Europe, though, what, uh, I mean, I, if I were to liken it to Europe, uh, I would say Western Europe versus the Russians, mm. right? 
But I don't think that's what you're saying. So you, if you said that you, you, you imagine a security architecture down the line that would include Iran. So if you're, if you're, if you're making the, the analogy, what's the analogy that you see there? Uh, during the Cold War, there was a Mexican standoff in Europe. Yeah. And over time, we began to build organizations like the OSCE, as it's become, uh, which, and the Helsinki process, which you could begin to talk about these things. You didn't trust each other, but at least you began to have some conversations about it. And I think we need to look for some opportunity to begin building that conversation. I'm not looking at big organizations yet at this stage, but you need to enable conversations that people begin to understand where each other's coming, what each of you are frightened about, because it's fear that drives a lot of this potential aggression. I won't, I won't argue with you. I'd say fear and ambition, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. I won't, I won't argue with you, and we'll, and we'll uh, entertain some questions from the, uh, from the audience. Uh, here, sir, uh, could you hold on one second? We're going to bring a, uh, a we're bring a microphone. Could you uh, give the gentleman with the, the tie and the glasses there? <laughs> I'm, I'm Bill Goodfellow from the Center for International Policy. Um, it's hard to argue that, at least since 2003, that the American involvement in the Middle East has brought either prosperity or, or stability or democracy to the region. And yet, for the most part, you Europeans have followed pretty much in lockstep behind the United States. Um, there was one example where you did bulk and, and to a good result, uh, August 2013, uh, Obama was under a lot of pressure to bomb Syria in response to the Assad's government's use of chemical weapons against civilian population. Uh, first, Mrs. Merkel said, no, we're not doing it. And then the British Parliament denied da David Cameron the authority to use, authorization to use force. Obama backed off, said, well, we'll go to, we'll go to our Congress, and it was clear they weren't going to, to uh, go along with it. And the result was one of the few bright spots in, in Syria, the Lavrov-Kerry agreement to get rid of the chemical weapons. Now, the question I'm looking at right now, Afghanistan, I may be beyond your remit, but we're going to send another 5,000 troops or how many. We're looking, the Americans are looking to your governments to do the same thing. Now, um, the, the Afghanistan, as an awful lot of people feel, this is 5,000 troops. They're not going to bring about a, a military victory. Would, and, and a lot of people, a lot of my friends in Europe feel, this has got to be a negotiated political solution of some sort. Would Europe be willing to say, okay, we're going to put our troops in, but only if you can convince us, you, you military people can convince us that you're headed towards a, some sort of political solution rather than to try to win this. I mean, is, is you, Mr. Trump's made it easier for you to sort of act independently, that's for sure. But would Europe stand up and, and do that? And is there, you know, is there the political will? Is there the unity? And um, my, my hope is that, that Europe will start, you know, asserting itself. I mean, you're, you're very important players here. And, and like I say, Mr. Trump's made it a lot easier for you to act independently. Um, thank you. Uh, you're quite right that uh, Afghanistan is beyond my remit. Uh, once we get the other side of Iran, I hand over to my good friend uh, Gunnar Vigand, who uh, deals with Asia. Um, however, there is a point you made at the end, and I, w I won't uh, go back through the uh, sad history of um, uh, Syrian uh, policy. But there's a point you made at the end, uh, which is about uh, Europe's willingness uh, and ability to act independently in pursuit of what it sees as, as its interests. Um, and that is something that is clearly evolving quite rapidly and is an integral part of the, the global strategy that I outlined, but is now, uh, over the past year, I think, become a more urgent priority. Uh, in my own uh, sphere of, uh, of policymaking, for example, on Libya, we can't wait for the international community to get together and sort of agree a policy. We will support the UN, who are trying to get a political deal, but we've got to act. And therefore, we have to find the means to act ourselves, to uh, protect our interests, protect our borders, um, protect our political systems. 
Uh, in Syria, this is sort of on the cusp, because we know we can't alone impact on this, but the failure to find a durable solution to the Syrian problem runs ever greater risks for Europe's own interests in the region and at home. So what more can we do? And we are looking at that. And if the US are not going to act the way that we think is going to help produce a durable solution, then we can't sit back and say, well, we're not going to do anything then. We, uh, the first step is to try and reach a sufficient consensus with like-minded countries. And we still regard the US as a broadly like-minded country. We do share similar interests for, uh, to us in having a, a reasonably stable and, and prosperous world. Try and find things that we can work together on. But if not, we can't afford not to act. So we will. I, I, a question popped into my head I want to ask you. Uh, you, you mentioned, um, I'm going to take my prerogative as the chair here. You, 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 one of the things that's where there's obviously a, a very big um, divergence of interest, not perspective, but interest, is the issue of, of migration. Because that's something that directly affects Europe. It's not affecting us. So um, is there, do you feel that you get full cooperation from the United States on that question? Or is that question a source of, uh, is there any disagreement over that? I don't think it's a disagreement, but it, uh, it, for the US, if there's no solution in Libya, it's a problem, but it's not so much right. your problem. Right. For us, if there's no solution uh, in Libya, it's still our problem. It's in our lap. It's, it's next door to us. So yes, you know, there is, you know, in terms of priority, for us, Libya is absolutely up there. For you, okay, you want to put your focus elsewhere, you can afford to do that. Of course, we have made progress in Libya in getting rid of the terrorist threat. Daesh have been at least driven into the desert, maybe not destroyed, but driven into the desert. That was important for both of us, and we shared that interest um, and, and supported the, uh, Libyan forces that actually achieved this. And it was Libyan forces that did it. So, you know, I, Libya is not a total disaster zone. There has been some progress on that but not on the migration issue. So yeah, there, there are different perspectives there. Interesting. Peter, if you'll wait for the, the, the handsome gentleman in the blue suit. Thanks. Peter Rao from, uh, from Hudson. Um, how do you assess the, uh, the, Russian, um, the Russian role in the Middle East, its ambitions, its goals? What's the European Union position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Russia policy? And then also maybe to a lesser extent, but still also the Chinese role in the Middle East and North Africa. Thanks. Uh, second question is uh, easier. Um, the Chinese role has been very constructive in terms of the JCPOA on Iran. Uh, they are taking an increasing interest uh, in the Middle East and broadly in terms of trying to achieve greater stability and prosperity. So actually broadly helpful. Russian policy is more mixed. As you know, we have our own issues with Russia and the eastern uh, side of uh, the borders of the European Union, uh, which is challenging. And our view is that the Russian intervention in Syria has not promoted stability or a durable solution. It is at risk of perpetuating the problem for us and for the Syrians. Um, so our interests there, I would say, are not aligned with those of Russia. And uh, they are, there is a path where we could see there being some compatibility. And therefore, it's worth our while talking to the Russians to try and persuade them that a more durable solution in Syria is actually in their interests as well as ours. Um, but so far, we have not persuaded them of this. Uh, during the Kerry Lavrov um, love fest, <laughs> exactly, there, you know, there was a possibility of trying to get. It didn't succeed, actually. Um, one did feel sometimes that poor Mr. Kerry was led up the garden path, not once, not twice, but several times. However, he kept trying, and there was a purpose in trying. I recognise that. Uh, so it's not, we still need to talk to the Russians about this. They are, their engagement 
has to be achieved for there to be a, a durable solution. But at the moment, our interests diverge. Can I, can I push on that a little bit? And would you be willing to speculate as to why it's been so difficult to convince the Russians that we have shared interests, shared interest and a shared path for achieving them? Um, I'm not sure that the Russian interest necessarily lies in the region being stable. And our interest is in the region being stable. That's fantastic. Totally agree with you. Look who's here. The, the, the handsome gentleman in the, uh, in the yellow tie. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, wanted to ask, I'm Alan Mikofsky from Center for American Progress. And um, I wanted to ask you two questions uh, following up each of the last two. One, uh, regarding the refugee issue, how durable do you think the agreement is with Turkey, given the fact that the visa-free waivers are not going to happen? Um, and I've heard it said that actually the refugees are no longer really interested in going because they hear you can't get out of Greece anyway, and so that the agreement is kind of self-enforcing. So I wonder if you would just comment on that. And also, this is just an analytic question since Iran's part of your brief, and as a European, you follow Russia. Um, what is your sense of the Iranian-Russian relationship? Is it just a tactical arrangement that's a one-off for Syria, or is this something that's growing and we're going to see it, um, see them working together in many fields? Thank you. You asked very interesting questions. The Turkish deal... There's still my handsomeness, I think. <laughs> and your striking tie. Um, the Turkish deal has uh, been a lot more durable than many people expected. And despite what uh, you have to describe as a bumpy period in uh, European-Turkish relations, both sides have respected it. Because actually it is in the interest of both sides. Now I agree with you that there are challenges on the visa-free uh, aspect of that. Uh, visa-free uh, travel, it's still available. Uh, there were agreed conditions on it being applied. Those conditions have not yet been met. They now say they won't meet them, so um, you know there is a question mark there. Um, but uh, the Turks sometimes speak with a range of voices, and uh, we'll see how things how things evolve. But for now, it's still working. Um, in Did it you are right that far fewer go. I mean, it, it went from thousands a day down to, you know, maximum 50, uh, between 10 and 50 a day. So those that land, as you say, tend to stay there or go back, uh, not move on. Uh, in terms of Russia and Iran, it's a very interesting question, and I, I wish I knew the answer to your question. Uh, but our perspective is that all the parties engaged in the Syrian conflict have different and the individual interests. There are occasional convergences, and the Astana process that brought the Turks, the Russians, and the Iranians together um, is surprising in some ways, because their interests do diverge, but they found common ground in looking at these de-escalation zones, trying to reduce the fighting in at least part. And I'd like to ask you what you think is happening to US policy in uh, in South and East uh, Syria, because I haven't yet had an answer um, as to exactly how that is going to evolve. But in relation to Russia and, and Iran, they are allies of convenience, I think, rather than allies of conviction. But as long as their interests coincide, they will work together. And once they diverge, we'll be interested to see what happens. I have to tell you, we're already a minute past our end um, time, but we started a little late. Can we? Can I convince you to stay for four or five more minutes? I think I'm allowed. My mind uh, is gone, so yes, I'm allowed. Uh, ish, ish. Okay, so we got we have time for one more question. Let's put it that way. And Miss, here comes the microphone. Oh, there. Uh, what is your? Sorry, can you identify yourself? Uh, yes, Susanna Seltzer, Carnegie Mellon University. 
what are Europe's interests uh, in relation to Qatar? And uh, do you foresee Europe having any role in sort of intervening in the issues going on there now? Very interesting question. Um, the European member states collectively have huge interests in the Gulf, massive commercial, financial, um, and historic interests. Therefore, what happens in the Gulf is of very immediate uh, interest to uh, many European member states and the European Union collectively. Uh, we are very concerned about the falling out of some members of the GCC with each other. And uh, we want to continue having good relations with all the individual members of the GCC. We want them to have good relations with each other. And we think GCC unity in the Gulf is vital to achieve stability in the region and to tackle the issues that are raised in this quarrel. From our point of view, we absolutely need to stop people supporting terrorism. We need to stop the financing of terrorism. And we want to work with all the members of the GCC in achieving those objectives. Uh, we think the longer this crisis goes on, the more destabilizing it's likely to be. So we want them to de-escalate it as quickly as possible. We welcome even the small steps that have been made by the Saudi Arabians in relation to mixed families, you know, that de-escalate. We fully support the Kuwaiti mediation because this is a problem that they need to sort out amongst themselves. We can't intervene, impose, but we absolutely encourage and support these mediation efforts. And we think it's quite urgent that we resolve this issue. Both the substantive issues that have been raised, you know, there, there's some real issues here, um, uh, not unique to uh, the one country uh, that has been uh, targeted. Um, those need to be addressed, but we need to do it also in a calm and collective way. Well, thank you. Um, thank, that's been a very, very substantive and interesting and a charming discussion. I really appreciate it. And, uh, please join me um, in thanking Nick for what was a lovely evening. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Mike. And thank you all for coming. I appreciate it.